just replace all the umpires. Why do you have an umpire calling balls and strikes anymore either? Just really. It's not necessary. Anyway. All right. Hour number three. Welcome to the program. If you're just joining us, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. I was sorry. I was just last hour. We got some news about the Major League Baseball rule changes. I'm not going to go into them. I don't even follow baseball. Um, but I know what these changes kind of are, like the banning of the shifts. I, well, I mean, I understood what a shift was. I didn't realize this had been occurring in the infield, and now they're going to ban that because they're getting too many people out. And God forbid we allow people to play the sport as originally intended. No, no, we're going to have to change it in order to make more home runs for everybody and higher batting averages and make sure everybody gets to see all of the runs. What? How about this? How about just have a pitch machine out there on the mound, Right. Just have a machine out there that just kind of slow pitches them in. And then every, yeah, like the uh, home run derby. Every game's a home run derby. How about that? Why why not? You're going to do all these changes to speed up the game or whatever, but you're still going to keep a human being as the umpire behind home plate making completely bad calls all the time? Come on. It's not necessary. Anyway. Sports talk. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what is school for? What is school for? This was a question in the New York Times posed by the education reporter named Anya Kamenetz or Kamenetz, 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 anyway, Anya, uh, she's the education beat reporter, the New York Times. What is school for? She asks. Kevin Williamson at National Review says we might answer that by asking a bit of a different question. Whom? Is school for, which actually wouldn't be correct. Would be for whom is school, right? For whom is school? Otherwise, you end up with the, the is that the prepositional phrase at the end, or is that a dangling participle? I, I never remember the difference. Anyway, uh, you've got Kevin Williamson asking, "Whom is school for?" Not what is it for? Who is it for? The consensus answer from the authors in the New York Times Symposium is the state. Though they almost never say so plainly. They don't come right out and say that. But that's what they mean, and that's what all of their answers lead you to conclude. The schools are there to serve as Horace Mann's crucible of democracy. Horace Mann's view, which apparently is shared by the education reporter Anya Kamenetz, 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 anyway, uh, is that schools are there to serve as homogenizing institutions. Though, again, as with the statism, the conformism is rarely acknowledged. This was always one of the uh, this was always one of the the comical aspects against uh, in the arguments against homeschooling over the years. I found it to be uh, comical, where defenders of the K twelve government model would, with a straight face, talk about how the K twelve schools socialize the kids in a way that homeschools don't. <laughs> and I often would think like, is that, is that the socialization you want for your child? Have you heard about the things going on in the schools? Kamenetz worries that if students are educated outside of the state's effective monopoly, then they may come into contact with religious or political views of which she disapproves. The homogenization 
at the core, yet unspoken. They're not saying that they want to crank out like a factory model because that's what the K-12 government model is. It's a factory model, right? You get the, the raw material. It's born on a certain date, right? You get a little born on date and bing, and you stamp the little born on this day and you push them through the system. And at each stage, you, you know, you put stuff in and you add stuff and you shake them all around and then you uh, move them on to the next station and you add some more stuff and you you do some you know quality testing or something i'm just kidding we don't really do that but uh you, you then you move it to the next level and you just keep on doing that and then when they graduate boom there's another born on date stamped and you're now off to do what college or uh go into the workforce right it's a k it's the k12 model is a is a factory model and it was like unembarrassingly unashamedly so when it was created, this was the whole purpose. As uh, as they said at the time, I, I don't know if it was man. I think it was horse man. They, they, we are not trying to create men of letters. That wasn't the purpose. Okay. Homogenization, conformism is the, is the purpose. Everybody is going to know the same stuff and you're going to have had the same experience. And that's why, by the way, a lot of people, even though they know, like during the pandemic, and I would have these conversations with people, and I said during the lockdowns, if this doesn't convince you to get your kids out of this system, I don't know what else would do it. And there are a lot of people who have nostalgia for their experience, and they want that same thing for their kid because they had it too. That's it. Even though their kid's going to have a different experience. But they want, oh, the, uh, I, I think back, and it was all, you know, it was all so great. Of course, that's not the case for a lot of kids who go through the systems and do not have good experiences. So there's this conformism. I did it. You can do it. We all did it. Don't we have all? And by the way, uh, edu- uh, education activists, uh, heads up on this one. This is why everybody thinks they know so much about education is because we've all gone through the system, <laughs> right? We all have some experience in a classroom as a student. We've all gone through like 13 years for the most part, right? Go through K through 12. And then you have a whole other crop of people that continued on in their education afterwards. So people have all sorts of experience in education, which is why they feel informed enough to offer up opinions. <laughs> so I, it's another thing about the, the K-12 defenders, the model defenders that I find comical is this idea that, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, actually, a lot of people do because they went through the system. They have firsthand experience. Or shall I use the common parlance of the day? It's our truth. We're speaking our truth. This is my truth. And you are, you, you cannot deny my lived experience. Your standard, guys, you, you made these rules. This is not my standard. Horace Mann's purportedly non-sectarian common school, as originally devised, was actually distinctly Protestant in its conception. This is widely understood. Back to the Education Beat reporter, Anya Kamenetz. Quote, This school choice movement rejects man's vision that schools should be the common ground where a diverse society discovers how to live together. Instead, it believes families should educate their children however they wish. How dare they? How dare they? Kevin Williamson at National Review says to write of the, quote, common ground 
where a diverse society discovers how to live together is euphemistic. It's marketing copy for the project of indoctrinating students in whatever official orthodoxies the people who run the education establishment prefer. Initially, it was to instill Protestant ideology, right? That was, it, that was the distinct and overt uh, a foundation upon which K-12 government or state-run uh, education was built. Why do you think it's different now? The orthodoxies may have changed, but there is still a top-down conformity model being employed. There is, in fact, very little racial, cultural, or economic diversity in our highly segregated public schools. Four out of five white students go to schools that are predominantly white. Most of them go to schools that are more than 75% white. So, not a lot of opportunity for discovering how to live together in diversity, right? If that's the purpose. There have been Christian schools for a thousand years. There have been historically black colleges and universities that have been extraordinarily valuable to African Americans. Maybe black schools and Christian schools are not good for the progressive vision of a populace educated into uniformity by the state, but they're awfully good for students, right? They're good for the students. The people who attend these schools, they think they got a great education for the most part. Do we reject that notion for those types of schools, Christian schools, HBCUs? Do we ignore that? Because they had a choice too, right? News Talk 1110-993-WBT. By the way, a reminder, September, Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month. And that means we are doing our third annual Little Heroes Blood Drives. Uh, The next one is going to be on uh, the 12th, Monday the 12th. Uh, Every week in September, we're hosting one. So the 12th, the 19th, the 26th. Uh, But go to WBT.com, set your appointment time there, and then come join us uh, at the uh, Jack Daniels Doghouse at the corner of Mint and Moorhead Street. Look for the One Blood Big Red Bus every Monday in September. Blood donations are actually really critical in treating all forms of cancer. WBT is trying to help out the local kids in the community here that are fighting the disease. So please, uh, if you have a mind to, consider making a life-saving blood donation. Um, And you can do that at WBT.com. And again, thanks to Jamison Realty and Affordable Siding and Windows uh, for their amazing support in that effort. Uh, Let me jump over here. We're talking about education and this piece that the New York Times did, the symposium they held and Uh, Kevin Williamson's response, uh, the question isn't what is school for, but for whom is school? Uh, And uh, Jim, welcome to the program. How are you, Jim? Hey, Pete. Hey. Uh, I think it's the most important topic in the whole country and in the state, education, and the way it's approached by and controlled by government. But Pete, uh, just this week I read in Union County, they're approved, approved, in the process of approving $135 million dollars for two schools, two new campuses. Now, one of them's a high school. I guess they're a little more expensive. And one, I think, is a grade school. $135 million, Pete. Uh, I'm trying to equate that, that kind of money, that kind of capital investment, 
to out, educational outcome, both the quality uh, to all kids, all income stratas, and I'm, I'm man, I just can't get my head around it. But they were bragging about the architectural features and the new technology mm-hmm. in these two campuses and buildings. And I'm thinking, boy, that's where the public education money's going, Pete. We have a massive investment in this state in public education infrastructure. But yet, what are we getting out of it? Well, we're getting out, two years ago, we're getting public school teachers in Mecklenburg County that said, we're not going to school today. We're not going to go. You know, we're not going. Mm-hmm. I think it's time for a Landro-style class action suit and let it go on, rip on for 30 years in which these counties, the Hosky out in northeastern North Carolina, Graham up in the mountains, they sue the big systems, Wake, Mecklenburg, Guilford, for all the extra money those systems get that they don't get. Let's have a a suit going that way, Pete. But anyway, I'll make one more comment. The public systems have hired people that are getting pay and benefits and perks that those people can't get at their quality of their ability level in the private market. That's what the public system has become and much of, of government. That's all I've got to say today, Pete. Well, Jim, are you going to, uh, uh, are you going to uh, set up uh, for a class action suit? You're going lend your, to lend your services to get that underway? Well, I don't know why we can't get that going. I think the Leandro, the way I understand it originally, is these far-flung counties, primarily rural and poor counties, we're not getting the funding that the big systems were getting. I guess that's what I, the way I understand it. Well, they, they were not able to pay for, they argued that the state was failing its obligation to provide a basic education as required in the Constitution, as promised in the Constitution. And, uh, and that was because the state would pay operations and not capital and the smaller uh, counties and less populous counties the, uh, and poorer counties could not afford to um, to supplement and, uh, the teacher pay, and they could not afford to uh, to build the buildings. Now that has been changed over the years. The state now pays more money to some of these uh, uh, to a lot of the the more rural counties and poorer counties. And also, this did come up at the county commission meeting the other night, where uh, some of the commissioners were upset because there was some funding allocated and it it exempted the bigger districts like Charlotte Mecklenburg from getting the money. And they were complaining about that. And I will say to his credit, George Dunlap noted, uh, you know, people are watching us talk about this. And he said, look, I go around, I talk about uh, talk education with all of these other counties. And he said, they're, they're in buildings that haven't been updated in 40 years. They've never had a new school building. So, you know, be careful, uh, you know, as you say these things, because there are a lot of other counties out there that do not have the wealth that Charlotte Mecklenburg has and has been able to supplement. Absolutely. And they all pay their teachers more money through supplement payments, local payments. Yeah, virtually all. Yeah. Jim, I got to run. I got to run. I got to go do some news. Have a great weekend, buddy. Kevin Williamson at National Review did a write-up on a symposium that the New York Times did. And uh, the question that the New York Times asked was, what is school for? And he said, the better question is, for whom is school? Well, he said, whom is school for? But I think the correct 
grammar would be for whom is school. But um, he talks about it should be for the students, right? He goes on to say there's a question of why some abstract egalitarian ideals should be given uh, predominance over the real world interests of actual children and young adults whose lives would be improved. Not in every case, but in many cases, by access to different kinds of education better suited to their own needs and interests. If you believe that the goal of education should be to reshape society along certain egalitarian lines and to impose a shared vision of the good life on a genuinely diverse population of 330 million people, then the old-fashioned Bismarckian factory model of education put forward by figures such as Horace Mann and the education reporter Anya Kamenetz at the New York Times, well, then I guess it all makes more sense, right? The schools are manufactories. Producing the goods, in this case, citizen workers, producing the goods required by the state. But for whom is school? Why are we educating the kids? What's the point? Is it to crank out citizen workers? Or is it to educate the kids? So they become lifelong learners, right? They, they have an interest in education, an interest in learning. They get skills that they need so they can pursue what they would like to pursue, right? The question should not be what kind of education is good for society or what kind of education is good for the economy or democracy or liberty or the teachers or the unions or whatever. It should be what kind of education is good for John, for Jane, for Seth, for Sita, for Ty, for Ajani. And there isn't an answer. There are answers. That's Kevin Williamson. I completely agree. This is why I'm, I'm a big proponent. I mean, my view is I would I would raise the entire K-12 model to the ground. I, that, that's what I would do. But I understand that that's not palatable or attractive to a lot of people. So uh, my compromise position, because you know me, I'm a giver. I'm all about solutions. So my compromise position is school choice. Let people choose. And if a local government-run school is... Really, really popular, does a really good job, they'll benefit. A lot of the parents will choose to keep sending the kids there. All right, let me go over here to uh, the phone lines again. Here is Sam. Welcome to the program. Hello, Sam. Hey, WMP. Hey, good. What's up? Hey, um, one of the, while you were talking about something, I gave you another idea, but on the original thought, why are we spending half or two-thirds of a school's budget on an athletic fields and complexes? So they can get scholarships to go to colleges and play football, I guess? So we're feeding, using the majority of the money to feed the minority of the students. Well, well, I mean, I don't know how much of a particular school budget is going to be used for all of the athletic fields, but yeah, that would be an interesting thing to break out. You know, how many football fields, how many uh, soccer fields, how many baseball fields, and then how many students use them. Oh, uh, oh by the Fort Mill Complex on the 21 uh, business in Fort Mill, South Carolina, yeah. and take a look at that complex. The complex is like eight times bigger than the school. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many, like you said, yeah. how many soccer fields do those kids need? They each need to have their own individual soccer field. Well, there's one for practicing. Coach. Right. Uh, you got one for practicing. You got one for playing the real games on. Uh, and I, and then you got a couple others just in case, I guess, the other fields are uh, are taken offline for some reason. I, I don't know. How how does this benefit our society, though? I mean, them being able to play soccer, are we also trading 
uh, observers, people that are going to support that by going and buying the T-shirts and the mm-hmm. the fifty dollars beers and the twenty dollars hot dogs and the stuff at the games. Are we, are we producing those too? Yeah. So uh, this is one of the things. Uh, I went to Winthrop University. We did not have a football team. They still do not have a football team. Um, I did not want. It didn't matter to me if there was a football team. I liked it, that it was a small school. I liked that they gave me an out of state waiver for my uh, so I could pay in state rates. Uh, and uh, it was a it was a good school. It had a program that I wanted to enroll in, and it was close. My brother was at the Citadel, and so I had family in the same state. And I liked South Carolina. It was also 800 miles away from uh, from my family up in New York, so that was a be- that was a, a benefit as well. And uh, no, and, and there were a lot of things that were attractive about Winthrop University. The size of the school being one of them. I had school choice. I did not need all of the athletic fields. Right That's now, right. right now, my wife she went to App State, and they got a they got a, big, a pretty big football program there. It's got bigger since she left, but uh, they have a very big one. And if that's what you want in your college experience, you have that choice. But we don't build K-12 schools like that. We don't build a lot of these schools with that kind of choice. All the high schools have to have all the same things because, you know, equality, equity, whatever term you want to use for it. And I understand that excuse, but by the same token, not all kids need those things, They nor do they want them. Yeah, look at these magnet schools. I did work in one, and I heard the, the talking there. The magnet schools get 25 cents on the dollar as a public school. They turn out better students, higher grades, scores are off the frickin' charts, but they don't have all these big scores complex. Otherwise, the money goes to educating the students on something besides throwing a football, hitting a ball, mm-hmm. kicking a ball. The money goes towards education. Yeah. It's and what are magnet schools, but an attempt to replicate school choice without actually doing non-public education, right? So it's the way that the K-12 establishment uh, is trying to fight back against the school choice and private schools. Well, we'll create magnet. Well, in Charlotte Mecklenburg, it was also uh, to try to keep busing alive when the court said you don't need to bus based on race anymore. So they started all the magnet schools in order to try to achieve that. But yeah, if you have a magnet school set up uh, focused on theater or whatever, right? Like, then you're going to get kids that want that kind of education. They're going to want to go to that school. They're going to want to stay in that school because they made the the active choice, right? They took active measures to go there. So they're going to want that more. So they're going to want to stay, and they're going to do better because it's what they want rather than the vast majority of the other uh, schools in the model. Well, what they should do is do the vouchers, figure out, okay, so much per kid, you send your kid where you want to. If you want your kid in a better school, you add a little bit to that money. And I guarantee you schools would start doing a good and better job because they like a business, they wouldn't want to attract the money. Yeah. That, it, it, like I said, that's my compromise position. It seems like a model that uh, would actually help kids. That's why I support it. So, Sam, I appreciate the call, sir. Thank you, sir. All right, buddy. Have a great weekend. Alrighty, so I got an email the other day from a fellow named Jason, longtime listener. He says, I listened to the podcast and I thought, ah, too bad I wasn't listening live today. Maybe I should write Pete an email. But he probably won't talk about education again this week. And then you go and talk about education again. He says, I have taught for 24 years. I began my career in North Carolina, which is when I began listening to you. I have since moved back 
to Canada, but continue to listen to you throughout your stints in Asheville and your own podcast, and now back in Charlotte again. In my 24 years of teaching, 20 in elementary, I have learned that one of the many factors of why we are failing, and there are many, is the fact that 80% of teachers are ladies who did really well in school when they were little girls. They have no idea how to reach kids that do not do well in school. The best teachers in a building tend to be the shop teachers. This is, again, an email from Jason. (laughs) He says, why is this? Because they hated school, and they know how to reach kids who also hate school. School is built to serve girls. Everything about them is geared towards girls, the books, the writing, the seats, etc., etc. When's the last time you sat down and wrote a personal narrative story, Pete? That's exactly what we ask little boys to do every day. How many grown men do you know that write a daily journal? I dare you to find an elementary ELA classroom that does not have a daily journal portion of their class. When female teachers see boys playing rough on the playground, they immediately shut it down, chastise them, and make them sit in timeout. Our system is failing boys. Several years ago, the Canadian Teachers Federation was tasked to research why there are so few male teachers, especially in the younger grades, and propose how we might recruit and retain male teachers. Their report is the prime example of everything wrong with education today. Rather than answer the question that was asked, how do we retain and recruit male teachers, they expanded the list to include First Nation teachers, gay and lesbian teachers, teachers of color, and early career teachers. And their findings? The myth that boys need male teachers as role models in their early years is not true. And we don't need to recruit more male teachers. However, you'd be surprised, or maybe not, to learn that they went on to say First Nations, gay and lesbian, students of color, those students did need to have models that looked like them in order to help them succeed. I'm afraid they did not see the hypocrisy in their findings. One other Canadian Teachers Federation story, if I may. On International Women's Day, the CTF tweeted that we need more equity in education. So I tweeted back, oh, so do you mean we need more males in education since 80% of teachers are female? They responded that they were referring to leaders. And I said, great, 60% of our leaders in education are also female. So do we need more male principals as well? I love the show, Pete. Listen every day to all three hours of the show via podcast. Uh, Not all teachers, and in fact, not not all teachers' unions are bad. Um, In my province, in Canada, many items we bargained for in our last contract were actually student-centered. That is from Jason. Up in Canada, I appreciate the email. I know it was a couple days late in reading. I was a couple days late in reading it, but I delivered. Uh, Thanks for the email. It's interesting perspective. Someone who has taught in multiple places, different countries, and this is what he identifies. Also, here's a pretty big problem. I am aware of this. Thank you, Carol, uh, who sent the message about Gaston County. The Gaston County school system, they apparently can't even get their, they can't even get their, uh, their teachers paid. Right. They're like not even able, like literally can't print the checks or something, can't do the direct deposits. They can't manage the payroll. This has been going on for a while. That's unreal. They did a protest out there, too. Um, A reminder also before I uh, I leave here, Sunday is the uh, anniversary of 9-11. There is the uh, the Flags of Remembrance event going on at 8 a.m. at Ramirez Bearden Park. The Firefighter Stephen Coakley Foundation is going to host the memorial uh, at the site of the Flags of Remembrance, where they've got, uh, you know, in honor of all of the victims of 9-11, they got all the flags. They've got uh, pictures of each of the the victims. Um, 
out there at the park, and uh, the memorial is going to consist of the uh, the tolling of a bell at the prominent times of 846, 903, 937, 959, 1003, and 1028. It will include a replica of the Twin Towers to sign for sharing your thoughts. Uh, there's also going to be one of the beams. I remember when Charlotte uh, received that. Uh, one of the beams from the World Trade Center is going to be there on display. Uh, all are welcome to come visit, remember, and be a part of the tribute. Um, they've got Dave Beamer, who is the father of Todd Beamer, who was on Flight 93 that charged the cockpit um, of the flight that eventually went down in Pennsylvania. So his father's going to be um, the guest speaker this year. Again, Ramir Bearden Park and the flags of remembrance are going to be removed uh, on Tuesday. But if you want to see the uh, the display and be part of it, it starts uh, Sunday morning at 8 a.m. The flags of remembrance uh, again, if you want information, ffstephencoakley.org. That's Stephen with a V, ffstephencoakley.org. You can follow them on Facebook, Instagram, uh, and uh, Twitter as well. Um, what else? Oh, yeah, real quick. Let me get to this story. Uh, there is a guy named Dimitri Deskalakis. Deskalakis? Deskalakis? Anyway, this guy is now in charge of the White House National Monkeypox Response Deputy Coordinator, whatever. Have you seen pictures of this dude? He's got he's got pentagrams all over him. He's like tattooed all over. Two six packs of shiner, 99 cent butane lighter, lucky strikes and a fifth of Patron. Ice down that igloo cooler. Take a guess at all to do her. I can feel a good one coming on. Throw in Ray Wiley Hubbard. Sing along to Redneck Mother. Any blues I had before are gone. Another working week is over. No chance of staying sober. I can feel a good one coming on. All right, so what's the deal? The guy's got these pentagrams tattooed all over him. He wears, like, bondage outfits with the pentagram symbol. You know what that's a symbol of, right? Satan. It's true. Skinny dipping in the bright moonlight Situation couldn't be more right I can feel a good one coming on Yeah, we gonna roll all night We gonna get the feeling right We gonna keep this party rocking Till the break of dawn Yeah, I can feel a good one Feel like a good one Look, I'm not saying that the guy's a Satanist. <laughs> all right. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying guy's got tattoos all over his body. This is the head of the National Monkeypox Response Team. He's got them all over. I think somebody might want to ask, hey, did Joe Biden appoint a Satanist to the White House? And maybe he's the most qualified person to head this response team. I don't know. I just, I got some questions. 
But hey, we'll see you Monday. Don't break anything while I'm gone.